Would you please join me as we stand together to read God's Word and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. We come this morning in our ongoing study through the Bible's first book to the start of the story of Joseph. It's a story that I suppose many of you may know quite well. Some of you may be encountering for the first time over the next few weeks as you join with us. It's a story that is significant for all kinds of reasons, not just in the book of Genesis, but even the entirety of Scripture. If you just look at Genesis as a whole, you see that the Joseph story takes up 14 chapters, the same number of chapters that the story of Abraham did, but the number of verses devoted to the story of Joseph exceeds the number of verses devoted to Abraham, the very man of faith by some 25%. And even as best I can tell, we have more words recorded from Joseph's mouth than any other Old Testament character in the way this narrative develops. And so what we're going to see over the next few weeks, Lord willing, is all kinds of reasons that we should hope in God in the midst of hardship and suffering, reasons that will even come to us as we examine Joseph's first words this morning in just the first 11 verses of chapter 37. So let me read that short text for us and pray for God's blessing on our study, and then we'll begin. So let's hear now as our God of truth speaks to us through his word. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do bow before you now asking for your blessing, asking that you would send your spirit of truth, your spirit of holiness into our hearts, that we might know this word, that we might understand its truth and follow it with our whole lives. So open our ears to hear with meekness and earnestness. Open my mouth to preach with clarity and compassion as you say I must. That you might do us great good and that we might glorify your name. We do pray these things in the precious name of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. 
You may be seated. The first seminar I had to take in seminary several years ago was titled Patristic Theology and Spirituality. Uh, Students, that's just kind of a fancy way of saying it was a study of the doctrine and devotion of the oldest church fathers. And one of the required texts for that class was the letters of Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop of Antioch in the early church. He was one of the most prominent and influential Christians in the Roman Empire. And so if you know anything about Christianity and its relationship to Rome in the second century, you knew that, therefore, Ignatius was very much in the, in the crosshairs of Rome. He knew that he was soon going to die for his faith, that a martyr's death is what awaited him. He just had one problem with that pathway and spiritual trajectory, and it was the Christians in Rome. Because they were doing everything they could to make sure that Ignatius wasn't martyred for his faith. So he wrote these letters to the church at Rome pleading with them to knock it off when it came to try to get him off the place where he would be killed. For example, in one letter he said, I fear your kindness may harm me. You may be able to achieve what you plan. In other words, stopping my martyrdom. But if you pay no heed to my request, it will be very difficult for me to attain unto God. Becoming like Jesus Christ in his death, language from Philippians chapter 3. And as I thought about that story this week, I thought about how it is completely unlike how we tend to approach hardship, persecution, and suffering, is it not? We do know that the Christian life is one of difficulty, it's one of persecution, it's one of sorrow. And yet, I would submit to you that it's no stretch for me to say that when such calamity comes, we don't make the declaration of Ignatius of bring it on as much as we ask a question or questions. Where is God in the midst of my pain? Why does God seem silent when I keep crying out to Him day after day and night after night, tears upon tears? Where is God in the midst of all my hardship. And such questions need to be at the forefront of our mind when we begin to study the life of Joseph. Because those of you that know his story know that it is a story full of immense hardship, sometimes even unexplainable difficulty. And we might wonder, where is God? What is he doing? What is he trying to accomplish through the sorrow of one of his children? And we're going to begin to see even this morning what God intends to accomplish through the suffering that is going to come Joseph's way. So if you want to know where we are in the story of Genesis, if you haven't been with us in recent weeks, it's pretty simple. Just stare back up at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 37. We're told that Jacob was living in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. And then verse 2 says, these are the generations of Jacob. That language of these are the generations of a particular individual. It's specific language in Genesis that signals a transition in the story from one main character to the next. It was used as the story would move, for example, from Abraham to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob. And now Jacob to to Joseph. And if you were with us last week, we saw how Jacob, as he was in the promised land, he had finally arrived back at the great holy city, the place of Bethel, where he built an altar and worshipped God. He had met with God there in a 
famous stone staircase dream in chapter 28. But there was an immense amount of sadness and sorrow that marked Jacob's life in chapter 35. Because he had to bury Rebekah, his mother's beloved nurse, Deborah. Then Jacob had to bury his beloved wife, Rachel. Then he had to bury his beloved father, Isaac. Esau and Jacob come together to bury Isaac. Then we get Esau's genealogy in chapter 36 again in the sweep of Genesis signaling for us, hey, the story is about to transition. And it's going to transition, of course, to Jacob's son named Joseph. So I wonder what you know about this story of Joseph, Jacob's beloved son. Maybe you recall his journey down to Egypt, his interaction with his brothers, Maybe there's not much you know about Jacob's son, Joseph. But what you need to see, of course, is 14 chapters, more or less, devoted to Joseph in Genesis. He's a quite significant character. He's going to show us many reasons. So kids, you're going to want to pay attention in weeks to come. Joseph's life gives us many reasons why we can trust God even amidst uncertainty. Why we can trust God even amidst calamity. And what we're going to begin to see this morning, as I just mentioned a few minutes ago, is not just God's plan for Joseph, ultimately. But we're going to see how exactly God intends to bring that plan to pass. And it's going to begin in our first 11 verses as we notice this theme. The beloved son's rejection. We're going to get reasons why he is going to be rejected. Joseph, who is the chosen, the favorite, the beloved son. Not just of his father Jacob, but of course beloved of the Lord as well. So if you glance down at verses 1 through 4, we're going to walk through those few verses under the heading of loving the chosen son, because it's underscoring for us Jacob's delight in Joseph. But then Joseph's dreams dominate the rest of the passage in verses 5 through 11, stirring up his brother's hatred. So we'll move from loving the chosen son to hating the chosen son. And then make some applications along the way. So loving the chosen son, look again at verse 2 as it continues. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now students, if you stare long enough at verse 2, especially that middle section, it may seem a little bit off. It may seem a little bit odd. You have Joseph's age given as 17 years old. But then just a few phrases later, he said to be what? A boy. Well, 17-year-old kids were not boys in Hebrew culture. And so the word actually here for boy that my ESV translates is really better rendered something like servant or helper. It's helping us understand what Joseph was doing at this time in Jacob's family. He was essentially a shepherd apprentice to his brothers, Dan, Gad, Naphtali, and Asher. And he was with them in the field. And then as the text continues, we begin to see the discord and disunity that's already seemingly present between Joseph and his brothers that would reject him. For look at how verse 2 ends. Joseph bought, or sorry, brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, depending on how you take this language of bad report, it could highlight Joseph as an unrighteous guy or highlight Joseph as a pretty righteous son and brother. Because you could take the language of bad report as essentially saying Joseph delivered a slanderous report of his brothers to his father. So kids, you probably have a word that you would use of someone like that. Maybe you've heard it even used of you before. You're a little more than a tattletale, right? Joseph is seemingly just tattling on his brothers. But I actually think 
we're meant to take it as Joseph's righteousness is alluded to here, because you can also take that word not as much as he reports a slanderous message to his father, but he reports the brother's slander to his father, if that makes sense. But he's just delivering simply what he heard his brothers say. And it's not that surprising that Joseph would be even delivering such a report, because glance down at verse 14. This seems to be something that Jacob used Joseph for quite frequently. In verse 14, next week's text, Lord willing, Jacob commands Joseph, go and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So that seems as though Jacob has told Joseph, hey, kind of function as this servant, this shepherd apprentice with your brothers and keep me up to date on what they're doing. And as you would probably imagine, the brothers don't really like the idea of their younger brother reporting their bad actions and their bad words. But that really isn't the root of their disagreement with Joseph. That comes more, notice what we're told in verse 3. Jacob's favorite sin rears its head once again. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. As best I can tell, Joseph was literally the son of Jacob's old age. Jacob was probably something like 90 years old when he had Joseph. Now, kids, do you remember who Joseph's mother was? Rachel, right? Jacob's beloved wife. And so in in Jacob's mind, Joseph isn't just merely the firstborn son of Rachel. He really is the firstborn son in his heart. And he wants to underscore even, doesn't he? The preeminence and his preference for Joseph by what comes next. Notice verse 3. Jacob made Joseph a robe of many colors. Many colors. This fancy robe that Joseph flaunted as he walked through the tents of his father. And that robe, multicolored robe, is actually somewhat popular in our nation's cultural perspective. Even the late 20th century had this really successful and well-known Broadway play that was titled something like Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But you might be surprised that in the original it actually says nothing about colors whatsoever. It has more to do with royalty, more to do with long flowing cloaks and coats. It was something that would be quite different than the clothing that his brothers would wear. So his brothers is just kind of ordinary shepherds, ordinary workers. The common coat that they would wear would be sleeveless. You know, you, you can't work outside, can you? With these long flowing robes, you know, with long sleeves all the way down to your toes. You need something a little bit more agile. But royalty, because they didn't work outside, did they? They just kind of sat back and ate and were served. They could have these long flowing robes. And that's what Jacob is giving Joseph. It is signaling not just his preference for Joseph, but also his desire that Joseph would have preeminence, that he would be not just the beloved son, but the one that would rule, the one that would receive the inheritance. And of course, given the bad report of Joseph, given Jacob's preference for Joseph's preeminence, uh, you you can't be surprised, can you, by what comes next in verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than all his brothers, they hated Joseph. Joseph, and could not speak peacefully to him. You could translate that last section as they could not even give him a greeting. They could not speak shalom, peace to him. Because in that Hebrew culture, whenever you would come into a tent, whenever you would come across a person, maybe even in your own family, they would say shalom, you know, peace. But the discord and the disagreement in Jacob's family is so immense that the brothers won't even seemingly say anything to Joseph. Maybe you've even 
sadly been in such a household experience before. It's as though Joseph is walking into the tent and suddenly the brothers turn their faces because they can't look at him in the eye. Or he comes around the corner into the area where the fire is cooking the food and suddenly they squash the conversation because they want to isolate Joseph and single him out because he's the favorite son of the father. Or maybe when Joseph goes out into the fields to go on these missions of gathering information to report back from his father, the brothers just raise their voices so that Joseph can hear all the jeering and jokes that they have at his expense. There's no peace in the household of Jacob. There's no peace in the covenant family because of Jacob's love for the chosen son. So you move from loving the chosen son to hating the chosen son as the dreams now come. I remember once watching this movie that was one of those you know, suspense thrillers that keeps you at the edge of your seat. It's just working its way up to this uh, climactic reveal of sorts. And just as that climactic point of tension arrives, it's as though the scene cuts away and a shot of the protagonist laying in his bed uh, comes and you see that he's sleeping and suddenly he blinks open his eyes. And of course, you as a watcher think, wait, did everything we just see and hear find out it was actually just a dream? Or was it actually true, everything that we just saw? And as we come to Joseph's dreams, that is part of the tension present there is, are these dreams true? Or is it all just fake? Because look at what we're told in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. So kids, you want to notice as the text continues, it's as though the the brother's hatred is like this fire that just gets hotter and hotter with each passing interaction with their brother Joseph until it just is going to erupt really in next week's sermon on the rest of chapter 37. But dreams have been quite important in the story of Genesis to this point. We've seen God multiple times come to his chosen people to reveal his word and to give his truth to them in a dream. But this is the first dream in Genesis where God actually doesn't speak. It's, it's a dream that's meant to be symbolic of a greater spiritual reality. It's this agricultural dream, because notice what Joseph says in verse 6 through 7. He says, hear this dream that I have dreamed. And you maybe underscore the nature of behold in what comes. He's like, look at this, see this. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the fields, and behold, my sheaf arose. Now kids, if you don't know what a sheaf is, it's just like a bundle of grain, right? So, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold. Your sheaves gathered around it, and it bowed down to my sheaf. I don't know if you have a friend or a family member that seems to be one of those type of people that just remember their dreams really well, and with some relative frequency, they may report to you the dream that they had the night before in all of its detail, and maybe even they'll come to you and say, hey, do you think that dream is you know, symbolic or in some way significant of something going on in my life? And I've had people like that throughout my days and I have no interpretation ability when it comes to dreams and so I always say I have no idea what the dream represents. I can't see anything significant about it whatsoever. But here with Joseph's brothers, they know exactly, don't they, what the dream represents. It's that basic, it's that bold, it's that obvious because look at what they say in verse 8. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So students, it's essentially them saying, who made you in charge of us? You who is the youngest 
son, or certainly the eleventh of twelve. Well, the hatred increases, doesn't it? You look at the end of verse 8. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Hatred flowing forth in the covenant family because of this sibling rivalry. Hatred even, if you see it correctly, hatred of God's word. Because Joseph's dream is nothing other than divine direct revelation from God about what Joseph is going to be, whom he's going to be, how he's going to even redeem his family, be their provider and protector. And the brothers want nothing to do, you see it, with God's revelation. I hope you know that that can even happen in the church. That can even happen in covenant homes. That God's people want nothing to do with his truth because it doesn't fit their scheme of what they want to be true, how they want to be led, how they want to be directed. Perhaps there might be a place in your life where you wouldn't say you're hating God's truth, but you may be like the brothers rejecting God's truth and its authority. Well, a second dream comes. Notice verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Now, before you kind of see how the first dream that was an agricultural dream comes to the celestial dream, you need to know something about who dreams in Genesis. First of which is Joseph. Whenever he encounters dreams, they always come in pairs. Always. And sometimes you then have to ask the question, well, why? What was so significant about dreams coming in doubles? Well, in the ancient world, when revelation came through a dream, it was understood to contain the most weight if it came through a dream that had two sets, or I should say two dreams attached to it in order that it would confirm the dream. And you can even see this in Joseph's own life. If you flip over to chapter 41, verse 32, he's interpreting these two dreams of Pharaoh. And look at what he says, chapter 41, verse 32, of doubling dreams. Joseph says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God. And his brothers would have known this. So here comes another dream that's essentially saying the exact same thing. It's going to confirm the very reality of which it speaks. Look at verse 9. The celestial dream. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Right? You don't have to read too much into that dream to know its point, do you? Joseph is going to be the one to whom belongs all rule and reign. This time, it's not just, however, the brothers that it upsets. It upsets Father Jacob, too. Because you look at what he does in verse 10. He rebukes Joseph and says to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now that word rebuke, it's a really strong one. It's used in Psalm 106, for example, of Yahweh rebuking the Red Sea when he parted it and delivered his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It's almost as though you might say in our more common way of speaking today, Joseph hears from his father, cut out the crazy talk, son. This is just madness. Stop it now. Well, the brother's hatred is not the only thing that is rising by, based on what Joseph is retelling to them. Look at verse 11. It's not just hatred. His brothers were also what? Jealous of him. Again, sin in the covenant family. Brothers jealous over what? That someone else was chosen. 
My students and children, I hope you know how great a threat such jealousy and envy can be to the Christian life. Jealous, envious over what someone else gets, what someone else receives. A kindness that you crave, they get, but you don't. How often even hatred, isn't it true? Envy and jealousy can be ripe in the covenant family. And it doesn't go unchecked because there's no repentance. There's just rejection of what God has decreed is going to happen and revealed is going to happen. But it's almost as though at the end of verse 11, we need to cut Jacob some slack in his rebuke of Joseph. Because look at how our text ends. The brothers are jealous, but Jacob kept the saying in mind. It sounds somewhat similar, doesn't it, to these phrases we'll get particularly in the gospel according to Luke about Mary pondering and treasuring up these things of her son Jesus Christ. There's almost these memories on which he needed to meditate in years to come because maybe he realized after all it wasn't terribly much crazy talk, these dreams. Maybe the doubling of the dreams was actually speaking about something that would be true. Something certainly that Jacob would have wanted to be true. That his son Joseph, the beloved son, would rule. But the point of this passage is giving us the reasons for the brothers' coming rejection of this beloved son. When I was in fourth grade, my family moved from Richardson up to Allen, Texas. We moved from this kind of older home to a new home that we were building in one of the first subdivisions that was on the west side of the highway in Allen. And it was a unique experience, you know, as a, as a young child in the house. I didn't have any categories for what home building looked like. You know, we would, we would drive up there and we would see the lot. And my parents would talk about what the house was going to look like. And I, I just couldn't visualize what we were going to be living in in the near future. And then they would pour the foundation. And you go, okay, I have a little bit of a better sense of what the house is going to look like. But still, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, where's the kitchen going to be? And where are the bedrooms going to be? And then the framing goes up, right? And okay, yeah, this, this makes even more sense, right? Okay, the room's about this size. This is where the hallway would be. And then by the end, it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? As the thing was built from the ground up. And in something of a similar way, what we see happening here in the story of Joseph is the kind of foundational framing of his life takes shape. Because what we're getting is not just the foundation for what God plans to do with Joseph. We get also the foundation for what, again, we'll see next week, Lord willing, is the brother's ultimate tragic sinful rejection of this beloved son. But also what we see is the, even the framing, if you will, is going up in Scripture. We're seeing the outlines of the major lessons, spiritual truths that we need to see in this story of Joseph. And so what I want to do as we begin to close this, frame those out for you. These lessons that we genuinely will find in every single chapter of the story of Joseph. At some level, every single sermon on Joseph must confront these two essential truths. The first of which is notice the affliction of God's beloved. You can't read those 11 verses without noting this this kind of volley-like of hatred that the brothers have for Joseph. The chosen beloved son. And you may not know this. Joseph is presented in such a way in Genesis as though he's without sin. He's only one of three men in all of Scripture that the Bible never says actually sinned. Joseph, Daniel, and Jesus. We, of course, know Joseph sinned, don't we? He dies at the end of the book. But here's the point. If you know the sweep of Joseph's life, 
He's presented as this preeminently holy follower of Yahweh. Yet what happens? Things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. Not for a few days or a few weeks, but for years and years and years. Kids, you must learn early on that you must devote your life to God. But sometimes that very devotion means increased sorrow and suffering. Faithfulness to God doesn't erase all affliction. No, it gives you an anchor in the midst of that hardship. It gives you a foundation in the midst of that difficulty. So as we continue on in the story of Joseph, you can begin to wonder aloud, how is it that he can endure? How is it that he can persevere? How is it that he can remain steadfast through such calamity? Through such suffering, well, he knows, secondly, that God has chosen him. So you need to not only notice the affliction of God's beloved, but know the election of God's beloved. It's another text in Genesis, isn't it, that's pointing out to us that rich doctrinal truth that God chooses whomever he wills. Didn't he do it with Ishmael and Isaac, choosing Isaac, with Esau and Jacob? Choosing Jacob. Now, with Joseph and his 11 brothers, choosing Joseph. For no reason whatsoever. This 17-year-old, simple servant shepherd, beloved by his father, singled out by God to become what for his family? You must understand this rightly from the very outset. Joseph is the savior of his family. And so what you really need to see as we begin to walk through the story of Joseph is how the shadow of Christ is everywhere on these pages. A great 20th century preacher and very influential writer named A.W. Pink in his book Gleanings from Genesis, he charted out 101 clear connections between Joseph and Jesus. Because if you have eyes to see, it's everywhere. Joseph pointing us as the beloved son of Jacob to the true son of Jacob who's the beloved one of the Father. For likewise, Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the chosen one. He too is a shepherd, beloved by his Father. Wasn't he also clothed with a royal coat? He also went to his brothers, the nation of Israel, preaching the gospel of rule and reign, the good news of his authority, his kingdom. And what did they do? You might know this from the gospels. They envied him. They hated him, and so what did they do? They killed him. They rejected him. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that his rejection leads to our salvation. The same thing that you see in the story of Joseph. Humiliation that leads to exaltation that ultimately brings about salvation. And isn't that the mercy and grace and kindness of our loving Lord to do the same for us? Because maybe you're in here this morning and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian When affliction rises, when calamity does come, do you have any anchor that will hold you in hope amidst the hardship? Well, true Christians have an anchor, don't they? They know that they are beloved in the Father because the beloved Son has given His life for them. So from the outset of Joseph, this is the two questions you want to ask yourself this day. Are you loving the chosen son? Or are you hating the chosen son? Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that you would stir within us a renewed affection for your Son, Jesus Christ. That you would allow us to meditate even on this Lord's Day. The glory and the privilege it is to know that we are chosen in Jesus Christ. That you love us in the Beloved. And may such truth strengthen us for our sorrows. May such truth equip us for our trials. That trust would abound in our lives. That trust would even abound in our church. That we might make much of you in all things. So equip us in the coming weeks as we study this magnificent story to grow in those ways that we might give you great glory. And we do ask it all in the mighty and majestic name of Jesus Christ. Amen.